Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. And welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight from the left, the right, and the center over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckets join me shortly on our topics this week. Expanding, reducing, and searching. Kansas Medicaid may be expanding. Mike Pompeo is reducing the likelihood of a Senate campaign. And the city council is searching for a new city manager. Plus, of course, roast and toast. But we start with our newsmaker segment and welcome the chief of the Kansas City, Missouri Fire Department. Donna Mays. Chief Mays has been a longtime city employee, serving in a variety of positions, including assistant city manager. She joined her father on the fire department in 1992 and recently became the first woman fire chief in Kansas City history. Chief Mays, congratulations and welcome to Ruckus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what prompted you to become a firefighter? Is it because of your father's involvement in that profession? You know, I, I think I grew up with the fire service and I got to see, you know, the enjoyment and the service that he was able to provide. And really my last semester of college, I, I kept debating with myself of did I want to go do a normal, you know, nine to five kind of routine or did I want to be more adventurous in my life? And so my last semester of college, I literally made the decision and went and took the written exam to become on become the fire chief or so on the fire department. When, when you joined the fire department in 1992, were you the only woman on the department? No, not at all. Uh, at that time, I think we had about 30, 32 women on the fire department. So very, very small number of females on the fire department at that time. How many women are on the fire department today? Do you think? Oh gosh, I think we're at about um, it's about 14 percent of our total um, amount of first responders and so. So I'm guessing about 150. So, do, do women firefighters do the same jobs as men? Uh, women firefighters do, yes. And you know, we have a variety of people that you know. We have some single role paramedics and EMTs, but then we also have dual role cross trained firefighters and, and females that are just strictly firefighters. I mean, it's obvious that one of the things firefighters do is fight fires, but mm -hmm. you have other responsibilities as well. Right, right, and you know we are responsible for all of the um, advanced life support transport in the city and um, ALS and BLS services and oh, back, back up and <coughs> right. what those are. <laughs> so BLS is basic life support so you know that's you know anything that doesn't require you know an IV or those sorts of med certain medications but then advanced life support are really you know our transports to um, for traumas and and um, more critical illnesses and heart attacks and those sorts of things. So. You rescue cats from trees? Uh, well, we, <laughs> we try to avoid doing that when we can, but yes, I mean, we do all kinds of, you know, a variety of calls for service. Well, we hear a lot about the violent crime rate in Kansas City, mm -hmm. the high homicide rate, and we know that affects law enforcement, police department. Does that also affect the fire department in oh, some way? It's, it certainly does. It does in a, in a variety of ways. Of course, we're responding in with KCPD on those um, you know, homicides and, you know, where we're able to, you know, if, it, if it's somebody that's just been shot or injured in that way, you know, of course, we're doing the, the um, advanced life support care and, and getting them to the hospital as quickly as we can. But really the impact on our responders in the sense of having to see those traumas over and over and over again, just like for KCPD uh, responders, it's, it has an impact on, on everybody. So. As the chief, do you still go to the scene of fires? I do on occasion. You know, you know we have a really good staff, and, and I've got shift deputies that 
um, go to the larger events. But if it's a third alarm or larger fire or some other type of significant event, it could be a, a large hazmat spill or a, a certain type of you know, rescue operation that I would go to those scenes. Do you, do you kind of walk a tightrope tight as chief of the fire department? On the one hand, you're part of the city administration. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you've been a firefighter and represent firefighters. Do you have to walk a tightrope? Um, for me, I think the the best part about me as a fire chief and me as a public servant is the fact that I've had that time in, you know, as assistant city manager, as you, you stated earlier, where I've been able to build relationships and be able to bridge that gap between, you know, city and the fire department. Fire department is a city department, but, you know, it's, it's such a unique um, service that we provide that it's oftentimes kind of separated from the rest of City Hall. Got a final question for mm -hmm. you. Do TV shows and movies Movies depict the lives of <laughs> firefighters accurately. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of truth in, in some of the things you see um, in those shows. I mean, it's always hard, I, you know, for cameras and film to be able to really show what a, a true fire scene looks like. I mean, they obviously have to have that visibility when they're inside of a structure. You know, oftentimes in fires, you know, you can't see further than you know your hand in front of your face, but. Um, I think some of the dis depictions around station life and, and those sorts of things, there, there's some truth in that. Real camaraderie yeah, that develops. Definitely, definitely. All right, Chief, it's good to so. meet you. Thank you very much for coming in. Come back and see us. All right, well, I appreciate you having me. Thank sure you. Sure enough. <laughs> that is Kansas City, Missouri Fire Chief Donna Mays. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. Alana Rately is executive director of the 19th Amendment Centennial. Terry Riley is a former councilman and now heads Transformation Consultants. Attorney Jim Heater also is a former councilman and senior executive at the Chamber of Commerce. Dave Trobert is CEO of the Kansas Policy Institute. Two Kansans, two Missourians, two Democrats, two Republicans, and a friendly host. What more could you want? Welcome to all of you. News is tough to predict. Who would have predicted that the 2020 Kansas legislative session would begin with a Medicaid expansion plan backed by Democrat mm -hmm. Governor Laura Kelly and Johnson County Republican Jim Dunning, the Senate Majority Leader, a longtime critic? But the two have come together with a plan that would make Kansas the 38th state to adopt Medicaid expansion, part of the Affordable Care Act known as Obamacare. Senate approval is virtually assured, however, it's not so certain that the GOP-controlled House will back the deal. So how did we get to the point with Kelly and Denning reaching a compromise? We'll ask that question to Dave. What compromise, Mike? Uh, this is full-blown Medicaid expansion. Uh, and it's not what, that's not what voters want. Uh, we just conducted a, a public opinion poll recently that showed 56% of voters don't want Medicaid expansion. When you ask them how do you want to pay for it, it changes the dynamics. 56% say don't do it, find other ways to make health care more affordable. 22%, the next highest, said uh, if you're going to do it, reduce spending. And that, of course, that's not what they're doing. Uh, there was also a, one compromise might have been uh, work requirements because, again, 71% of voters, including a majority of moderates and liberals, say they support work requirements, but that's not what this bill does either. It's just not what the public wants. Would there be different requirements under Medicaid expansion for people who receive Medicaid? Are the requirements any different than for regular Medicaid? Uh, the, the differences under, under this bill would only be who qualifies, and that's under the federal. Who qualifies would be the 
childless, uh, non-disabled adults under 138% of poverty. So you could have a family of four making $38,535 and still qualify for Medicaid expansion. You, you, you could, and unfortunately, well, I guess fortunately, many of those people already have coverage. 54% of the eligible adults in Kansas are estimated to already have private coverage. And then there's also uh, a little over 20,000 uh, adults who would be eligible who are getting it from the uh, health care. They're getting premium support. So if you have it already, why would you want to take part in Medicaid expansion? Exactly. Because of the cost? Th well, there's Wouldn't that. Wouldn't you pay less? Uh, well, you might pay less, but you might pay, you also will get arguably less coverage because now you're only going to go to doctors uh, who take Medicaid. Well, there may be Medicaid expansion in Kansas, Jim. Do you think there's any likelihood in Missouri? I think it's very unlikely. I think it's uh, at least in, on the, the, ballot, in, in the near term. Uh, if it happens, uh, which it very well could through the initiative process. I think if Missourians put it on the ballot, it will pass. It will pass overwhelmingly. Uh, I think it's unlikely to come through this particular Missouri legislature and this particular governor. You know, it's interesting when you ask at the, at the top of this question, who would have predicted? I had to think back a little over a year ago on this ruckus program, right after Laura Kelly had been elected governor of Kansas, you asked if there was any chance that because of her involvement with the Kansas State Senate and the, Democrat, and the Republican support she had when she ran for governor, that there would be cooperation between Democrats and Republicans in Topeka. And I predicted there would be on this specific issue, uh, and partly because the Kansas legislature had previously voted in favor of Medicaid expansion. Governor Brownback had vetoed it. But uh, a tip of the hat to Governor Kelly and to Senator Denning and others involved for getting to this compromise. And to you for being clairvoyant. <laughs> Are you clairvoyant <laughs> also? Can you times. make predictions about what's going to happen with Medicaid expansion in Kansas? Well, I, I, I talked to a member of the legislature today to find out where they were. Uh, I, I think you're dead on. The Senate will pass it, but the House is the big question. Oh, there have been 22 co-sponsors of the bill, and there are only 40 people in the Kansas Senate, I believe. Yeah, and, and, and I believe it's good uh, for Kansas, and I think it, it's particularly good for some of the rural hospitals that are struggling financially. Uh, for those in those, some of those in those. But aren't hospitals picking up the... the Kansas side of it through well, a that, that depends on what type of hospital. What type of hospital? Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the scheme. And it's only a band-aid, right? These places right. are inevitably going to go under anyway, and this just prolongs it. This isn't fair to people with the misinformation going out. We talked about how people are not, uh, they're already being covered under other plans. They have subsidies already if they're at that level. All this does is flood Medicaid and, and the program so that people who are able-bodied um, are getting into this program. And this was initially put together for disabled people. And now those disabled people are going to be pushed to the back of the line for somebody yeah. who can get insurance elsewhere. And Mike, this isn't going to help rural hospitals. Uh, even Laura Kelly admits but this isn't going to really do anything for rural hospitals. An independent study shows that they, they might get a few thousand dollars. I mean, these are uh, company uh, hospitals that are losing uh, millions or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. It won't help them. Let me rephrase that. I, I was speaking of health clinics, you know, health centers like you have, Soul Parkway Health Centers. I'm talking about centers like that will benefit. I was wrong on the hospital front, okay. but... All right, I want to ask those the final, types will final question this. for this section. Uh, uh, Alana, what else of major importance will the Kansas legislature be examining this session? 
You know, I don't know how much else they will be because they did uh, sc the school tax and things last year. Um, this particular session, we will be talking about abortion, abortion and amendment for that. So I think that will be the biggest things, and uh, Capers is dead on arrival. Tax cuts? <laughs> That's Aren't funny. Republicans going to be talking about tax cuts again this year? Well, since we are spending way more than we're bringing in, I think all you're going to see is tax increases. And I know Governor Kelly talked about reducing sales tax on food. That was something she said during the campaign. Is that a likelihood this session? You know, it's interesting. Uh, the, the push on sales tax on food has, has lost. I mean, there's still strong support for it, but the, the fervor has, has died back a little bit. Uh, I think there will be... Uh, discussion of, of how to legally do the remote sales tax. Governor Kelly and her revenue department illegally are doing that, um, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, if you read those opinions carefully. Uh, and I think that will be an effort, uh, a Republican-led effort, to do that appropriately, but not to use the money to spend more, maybe to buy down a food or some other sales tax. All right, got to move on. There is a perception that the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, is the principal decision-maker in local government. That is not true. In the council manager form used by Kansas City, Missouri, the mayor is one of 13 council members with a couple of additional powers. The real power is often centered in the city manager, an unelected administrator. And that explains why the current council is taking steps to ensure that its members play a key role in selecting the next manager. The post is open following Troy Schulte's retirement and moved to a similar job in Jackson County government. A council committee headed by veteran councilwoman Catherine Shields has reached a deal with Mayor Quentin Lucas over the search for candidates and the selection of a new manager. So, Jim, what is the deal and is it a good one? I think it is a good deal, and I think it bodes well for the relationship between uh, Mayor Lucas and the city council and the incoming city manager, whomever he or she turns out to be. You know, in, in Kansas City, Missouri, city manager and former government is a tri-legged stool. You have to have a good mayor, a good council, a good city manager, and everyone has to work together cooperatively. But would you agree that a lot of the power is centered in the city manager, not the mayor? A lot of the administrative power, but a lot of the leadership power comes from the bully pulpit of the mayor's office. And the council, with uh, with seven votes, can always override or, or move something yeah. forward. The manager works for 13 people, not one. That's correct. It's all, one of the most important qualities uh, and qualifications of any city manager is to be able to count to seven, and he has to consistently <laughs> do that if he wants to have well, longevity in that position. Terry, you two were on the city council. Do you think this plan is a legitimate one that the council and mayor have carved out and will proceed and, and find us a good city manager? Absolutely. I, uh, former Mayor Kay Barnes and I, um, early on there was a lot of talk that the mayor would make the decision by herself. Uh, got together with Kay, and we used the entire council to interview the candidates, and we came up with a good manager. And so I believe this process is the right process, and, and the one thing that you always have to get to is seven. So I think it's a way to bring the council together, come up with a good person that could deal with the issues that the council's facing. But Alana, the mayor is the face of city government in Absolutely. Kansas City, Missouri. Should he or she have more control over who is the city manager? You know, I think it needs to be fair and it needs to be um, a joint effort. I don't necessarily think the mayor needs more control. Uh, Jim, there's speculation and only speculation that the city council, at least some of the council and the mayor, are looking for a minority female to be city manager because that would be a milestone event. 
first time a woman city manager. We interviewed the first woman fire chief today uh, on Ruckus. Do you think that's part of the plan? I, I don't. I wouldn't use the word plan, Mike. I think there are certain members of the council, maybe even the mayor, who believe that would be a desirable outcome. Having said that, I'm absolutely confident that the mayor and the council are looking for the best person to do the job, which is the way it should be. Dave, what attributes should the council and mayor be looking for in a prospective city manager? I think this has to come down to qualifications. Uh, the most qualified person with a successful track record of providing good quality services at the most efficient price possible so you can you can get the service you need but not by raising taxes you you have to strike the right balance you need service all other things being equal it's it's fine to hit to look at uh, different kind of is it gender or race based or whatever but the first uh, qualification must be uh, capability to do the job what attributes should they look for in a city manager well, <clears throat> someone that... Uh, someone can, like Terry Riley. Yeah, yeah someone like <laughs> me. But uh, the city's facing uh, some extreme challenges as it relates to the budget. So we need someone with uh, the background in public finance because some of the deals that we've gotten into, uh, we, we need to refinance some of these loans, some of these uh, TIF projects, but someone that is a consensus builder as well. Uh, they can have all the qualifications, but if you can't bring your 13 bosses together to come up with a consensus, I believe that uh, it's just an, yeah. it, it'll be a waste yeah. of time. But yeah. the mayor, according to the charter, can uh, select three people and offer it to the council. But the mayor said, look, I don't want to do that. I want to bring the council together. And so uh, uh, I tip my hat to the mayor and his chief of staff. And, for, and Jim, for finally, the, the new city manager should probably have some academic training, a master's of public administration, maybe? I, I think you'll Absolutely. probably virtually every candidate who will be considered seriously for this will have that that's, kind of That's why people background. get masters in yeah, public administration right. so yeah. they can be considered Absolutely. to make a lot of money as city manager someday. Former Kansas, I wish I had, former Kansas <laughs> Congressman and now Secretary of State Mike Pompeo never said publicly that he would run for the U.S. Senate. In fact, he often <clears throat> said he would not. He told reporters he planned to stay as Secretary of State as long as President Trump wanted him there. Yet it was big news recently when Pompeo told Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell what he has said publicly for months, he's not running. News reports about Pompeo's statement included this caveat. He might just be saying he's not running and has until June to actually file for the campaign. So why is there so much interest in Pompeo and whether he is or is not running for the Republican nomination in Kansas to the U.S. Senate in 2020? We'll start with Alana, then we'll hear from Terry. So the reason there is so much interest in Pompeo is because he's arguably the number two most powerful man in the world. You look at someone like that who's on the news all the time, he's got name recognition, and he's doing a wonderful job. And personally, I'd like to see him run for president in 2024. But so people see that and they think he could beat anyone, and, and I agree. So I think that's why people are interested in him, and I think that's why there's been so much activity since he's decided and declared he's not running to Mitch McConnell. Terry, is that the right answer? No, uh, I'm not impressed with him. Uh, no, but is her, her answer the right answer? Though? <laughs> We're That's still friends. The, the right answer for her. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, I mean, well, quite frankly, I'm not impressed with Pompeo. Uh, I think he should stay there and, and just. I, I don't think Kansas, he, he's just gotten on the extreme. 
to me, on the extreme side uh, of, of the right. Uh, he, he's not willing to... Uh, uh, he, he, Pompeo's not... You're not a, a good, fan. I'm, no, I'm, I'm not a fan, that, that he, and, I, and I believe he just needs to retire after he gets out as Secretary of State. Dave, there's a lot of confidence that if Pompeo ran, he could win, is there not? Right. Yeah. Is there that confidence in any other Republican? Who's in the race now? I, I think it's fair to say that part of the reason there's so much confidence in Pompeo is there's less confidence in some of the other candidates. Uh, it's critical that we get someone to win this. I mean, this seat could uh, come down to flipping control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, right now, Chris Kobach is the front runner in the polls, and he already has a track record of losing to a Democrat in Kansas. Uh, and, and a lot of folks, uh, conservatives, say he did that to himself, and there's a lot of fear that he would do it again. Pompeo, um, um, I, I'm with Alana on this. Uh, I, Pompeo's a, a terrific guy. He's, he's whip smart. Uh, I think one of the things that whether you agree with him or not, the man, he's a man of principle. And that is a rarity in politics these days. Uh, Jim, I make notes of things you say on previous programs, uh, <laughs> as you do. And uh, I have heard you speak very positively about Barbara Bullier, who is the nominee presumptive for the Democratic Party in the Kansas Senate race in 2020. She's now raised over a million dollars, setting a record for Democratic nominees. If she is the nominee, and it looks like she will be, what key points will she be talking about? Uh, I think a couple of things, and, and you're right, I have spoken um, very positively about uh, Dr. Barbara Boyer before. In fact, I think once you asked me on this on this program, Mike, if I'd ever supported or voted for a Republican, and I said yes and gave her as an example. <laughs> she she was a Republican. As she was a Republican here. at the time, right. and uh, I have known her for many years, including uh, our, our membership in the same church, and uh, she would be what you would call in the past a progressive Republican. She was a terrific member of the State House and the State Senate. She switched parties for reasons I think that are, are well known. I think she will be a very formidable candidate. I think she will stick to issues like health care. I think she will stick to issues that uh, appeal to Kansans statewide. I think she will run very strongly, particularly in Johnson County, where there are a lot of votes to be cast, in part because she is a, a, a moderate Republican in the eyes of, of many, but also a very progressive and She Democrat. lives in Johnson County, she in does a very indeed. nice part of Johnson County. Yes, indeed. I think it's Mission <laughs> yeah, Hills, but, but actually. If, uh, she, boy, if she tries to run on her record, though, uh, our Freedom Index had her at 37% lifetime. In, in the well, what's the Freedom Index? The Freedom Index measures legislators' votes, uh, and that 37% rating means that 63% of the time she voted against constitutional principles. She voted against student-focused education, and she voted for tax increases. Uh, Alana, would uh, Republicans be smart to nominate a woman to run against Bollier like Susan Weigel? You know, I think Bollier has experience in some things, and her priority is going to be health care and those issues that you're talking about, but she hasn't practiced medicine in over 20 years. You know, I think the, the things that have been happening um, in health care lately have come in the last 10 years, the last five years. These are things that we're constantly need to be up to date and working on. I'd rather see a candidate, um, you know, a candidate like Amanda Adkins in Kansas 3 who has all those years of experience in lowering costs. I mean, I think that's would make Boyer a lot more interesting in, in her experience and her as a candidate. And uh, Senator Bob Dole has backed Roger Marshall. 
who is also a doctor. And now it is time for Roast and Toast, where the Ruckettes have 30 <coughs> seconds each to agitate, motivate, or exaggerate. Don't take that personally. We begin with Jim. I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> Mike, uh, since I, I last had the opportunity to appear on, uh, on the Ruckus panel, my good friend John Sherman and the ownership group that he represents has uh, finalized the purchase of the Kansas City Royals. And I would like to toast uh, John Sherman and that ownership group. I think it's terrific for, for not only John and the group, but particularly for the Kansas City Royals and for Kansas City to have local ownership. I'm not predicting a 100-win season by any means, but on the other hand, I think we can look to the long term future of the Kansas City Royals as an important cultural institution of this community and so a toast to, to John Sherman and his ownership group. We'll make note of that. <laughs> uh, Alana. Well in light of all the healthcare news lately, um, my roast goes to those creators of the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion. So I, I heard it told to me like this, the Affordable Care Act, it crippled you, broke your leg, and then gave you a crutch and said you're welcome. That is a toast from a very, very wise woman, Beverly Gossage, who has been leading the fight for Kansas and healthcare for several years now. All right, Dave. A toast to the dozens of brave parents in the Blue Valley School District. Even though fearful of retaliation from district administrators, they went public with frustration over their children being denied services for dyslexia, which is a reading disability. Federal law entitles students with dyslexia to receive extra services and as the Kansas City Star wrote, these parents' courage should prompt frenetic action by the district. Terry. Yes, I would like to toast uh, Senator Kiki Kuros from uh, Kansas City, Missouri, 9th District. She has been appointed by the governor to serve on the Labor Relations Board. She's been a longtime public servant to Kansas City, and so today I would like to toast her. And finally, for some inexplicable reason, my wife gave me a calendar titled Senior Moments for 2020. <laughs> there are appropriate thoughts for each day, like this one from Mark Twain. Age is an issue of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. And that is Ruckus for this week. We're back next Thursday at 7. And now for the Ruckettes and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks for watching and good night. <laughs>